All right, we're just going to read over some circulatory system notes. All right, so the plasma is the liquid portion of the blood, an aqueous mixture of nutrients, salts, respiratory gases, hormones, and blood proteins. Now the erythrocyte, aka the red blood cell, is a specialized cell designed for oxygen transport. And fun fact, they also don't have mitochondria because that way they don't use up any of the oxygen they're carrying. All right, but how do they how do they carry the oxygen? I'm glad you asked. They use hemoglobin, which is a molecule that can bind to oxygen. Now, a hematocrit is a measure of how much of the blood sample consists of red blood cells. For males, this is usually about 41 to 53 percent, and for females, it's usually about 36 to 46 percent. So the ladies don't, don't got as much red blood cells. Now, leukocytes are white blood cells, and they act as our defenders against pathogens, foreign cells, cancer, and other material not, recogni not recognized as the self. Granulocytes are a type of leukocyte named, or it's one of the categories of leukocytes, and they're named because they contain cytospl cytoplasmic granules that are visible in microscopy. So if you look at these kind of leukocytes under a microscope, you can see a bunch of little dots in them. And these include the neutrophils, the eosinophils, and the basophils. And these granules usually contain compounds toxic to invading microbes and are released through exocytosis. And so we have granulocytes. I'm probably thinking, what about the cells that don't have granules? That's a very, a very astute observation, because there are agranulocytes, and these are white blood cells, leukocytes that don't contain granules. And these are the lymphocytes and the monocytes. So that's those are the ones we're going to focus on right now. So the lymphocytes, those are the primary responders against an infection, or, and they function to maintain a long-term memory bank of pathogen recognition. The monocytes, those are the ones that phagocytizers basically just eat, gobble up the foreign matters such as bacteria. And the macrophages are a type of monocyte that have left the bloodstream and entered an organ. And so normally these will have like specific names uh, that I probably should be able to think of at the moment, but I can't. Uh, well, I think in the CNS, like uh, microglial cells are the the, the macrophages that, that protect the cells in the CNS. Oh, wait, I have it written down right here. Look at that. Yeah, so the CNS, the macrophages are called microglial cells. In the skin, they're called Langerhans cells. In the bone, they are called osteoclasts. But you're thinking, okay, there's, there's plasma, there's red blood cells, there's white blood cells. Is that all? No. There's thrombocytes. And what are thrombocytes, you might ask? They're platelets. And they're made of cell fragments or shards released from cells in bone marrow, known as megakaryocytes. And they assist in blood clotting and are present in high concentrations in your blood. Now, hematopoiesis is the production of blood cells and platelets. And erythropoietin is a hormone secreted by the kidney, and it stimulates red blood cell production in the bone marrow.
thrombopoietin is secreted by the liver and also the kidney and it stimulates platelet development. So thrombopoietin stimulates development of thrombocytes. Erythropoietin stimulates development of erythrocytes. It's clever how they how they do that. Now let's talk about our favorite topic. Erythroblastis fatalis. Now that is when the you, the mama, is not your RH negative, but your baby is RH positive. So the first one, it's all good and dandy, but then you give birth to it and your blood mixes a little bit. So, you know, the baby's fine, but your body starts making RH positive antibodies. So then if you have another kid and they're RH positive, those antibodies, which can travel across the placenta, they'll go attack that baby. That's just not good. We don't like that. So when that happens, that's called erythroblastosis fetalis. Fatalis. Pretty wacky. Alright, so that was all about the blood. Let's talk about the physiology of the cardiovascular system. Now, as blood's going through your body doing its thing, it will experience the largest drop in blood pressure when it goes across the arterioles. The arterioles, which is like tinier versions of arteries. And this is critical because the capillaries are very thin walled, you know, they're only like one cell thick. And so if they were to come in with a super high blood pressure, it'd just, just burst the capillaries, and that wouldn't be good for anyone involved. And so just like Ohm's law, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, V equals IR, for some reason they have that in the blood too, which is neat. So instead of V equals IR, you have Delta P, which is pressure, equals cardiac output times total peripheral resistance. And so the arterioles and the capillaries act much like resistors in a circuit. And you say, you know, resistance is based on re resistivity, length, and cross-sectional area. And so the longer a blood vessel is, the more resistance it offers. And the larger the cross-sectional area of a blood vessel, the less resistance it offers. You know, makes sense. And so excluding the portal systems, which are a whole, a whole other wacky thing, all systemic capillary beds are in parallel with each other. Therefore, opening capillary beds will decrease the vascular resistance and increase the cardiac output if the body can compensate. I'm still not 100% clear on, uh, on what that means or how that works, but, uh, but there you go. Excluding the portal systems, all systemic capillary beds are in parallel with each other. Makes sense. Therefore, opening capillary beds will decrease vascular resistance and increase... I don't understand how that works, but moving on. So did you know that your heart secretes hormones? Pretty pretty epic, isn't it? It secretes atrial natriuretic peptide. And so that aids in the loss of salt within the nephron, which is part of the kidney. So it acts as a natural diuretic with the loss of fluid. So your salt 
or so your heart will say, hey, we don't want to lose that salt. You better keep that. And when you keep the salt, you keep the water. So then I think that would uh, raise blood pressure because now you have more volume. Anywho, oxygen saturation is the percentage of hemoglobin molecules carrying oxygen. And now cooperative binding ha occurs when one hemigroup, I think it's called heme group, you know, like hemoglobin. Hemi is like the, the part of the hemoglobin molecule that attracts the oxygen. So when one heme group in a hemoglobin molecule becomes saturated with oxygen, hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen increases making it easier for its other three heme groups to become saturated. And the opposite is true when one heme group loses oxygen. This makes sense, you know, it gets, when it gets saturated with oxygen, when it's like picking it up in the lungs, binds to one of the four heme groups, and then the other ones are more likely to take it up. But then you don't want it to always hold oxygen, that wouldn't be much help, so then when you get to the capillary, one unloads an oxygen, and there's, there's other things in play that help, help it unload, but this is just one of them. So when one loses the other ones, the other ones by their the strength of their bound of their what do you call it? Their how they're holding the oxygen that weakens. So then when one loses an oxygen, the other ones are more likely to lose oxygen. And so because okay, so that's oxygen. But you're thinking I make a whole lot of carbon dioxide. What the hell happens with that? I'm about to tell you. Okay, be patient. So because carbon dioxide has low solubility in the plasma and low affinity to hemoglobin, when it comes out of the, the cells and into the capillary, it is actually combined with oxygen by an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase to form carbonic acid. So water combines with carbon dioxide to make this. But then that then dissociates into just a free proton and a bicarbonate ion. And that bicarbonate ion is very soluble in the blood. And so carbon dioxide comes out, fuses with the water, turns into carbonic acid, and that diffuses into bicarbonate and a free proton. And so that that bicarbonate ion, or yeah, the bicarbonate ion, it just diffuses into the blood. So then it travels through the blood as that. And then when it gets to the lungs, that reaction reverses. So it turns back into carbon dioxide and water, and then it goes out through the lungs. Isn't that neat? But this whole system is actually very important for the buffer, buffer system for maintaining blood pH. And I know I just said buffer, and you're probably shuddering. Gen chem flash. Actually, that might have been gen chem too. So maybe you're not shuddering. But, you know, you. You want your blood to stay at like a rel at a relative pH. You don't want it to fluctuate. I think it's seven point four. That's where it likes to stay. And this is a big buffer system. Pretty pretty important. Anywho, I was talking about those other effects that can make oxygen come dissociated when it's unloading by the capillaries. And so part of this is called the Bohr effect. So the Bohr effect is described as uh, when lower pH decreases hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen, and this aids in greater oxygen unloading during exercise, as higher metabolic activity makes more CO2 and lactic acid, lowering the pH. So, 
you're doing stuff, your body is doing the citric acid cycle. The byproduct of that is carbon dioxide. All right, so that lowers the pH of your blood. And when, you're, when your blood pH is lower, that means that because of the Bohr effect, oxygen is not going to cling to hemoglobin as well. So it pops off of the hemoglobin easier, and then it, it's able to go across the capillary. So that makes sense, right? You need more oxygen when you're exercising, so this makes it easier for you to get more oxygen when you really need it. But I know what you're thinking. I want to learn about babies. Okay, fine. I, I, your wish is my command, Master. Okay, I'll teach, I'll teach you something about babies. All right, did you know that babies have a different kind of hemoglobin? Maybe not babies, babies, but like fetuses, you know? The real, the really tiny critters. And so their fetal, their fetal hemoglobin actually has a higher affinity for oxygen than the adult, the adult or the maternal hemoglobin. And that, that kind of makes sense when you think about it too, because the mother's blood is going through the placenta to the baby and the baby needs to take in that oxygen for itself. So it makes sense for it to have a higher affinity because it has to rip those oxygen molecules off of the mother's hemoglobin, off the mother's red blood cells into its hemoglobin, its red blood cells. So that makes sense why it would have a, a higher affinity. It all, make, it all makes sense. That's why we, we live and we breathe and we walk and we talk. Anyway, that's, that was your little baby fact. So, hydrostatic and osmotic pressure gradients. When everyone's talking, all the cool kids are on this now. Uh, these gradients are essential for maintaining the proper balance of fluid volume and solute concentrations between the blood and the interstitium. And the interstitium is just the cells surrounding the blood vessels. Hydrostatic pressure is the force per unit area that the blood exerts against vessel walls. So hydrostatic pressure is a pressure that pushes fluid out of the bloodstream and into the interstitium through capillary walls. So you get the capillaries, that's where all the gas exchange and stuff takes place. So hydrostatic pressure is what's, is what's pushing it from the blood vessel into the capillaries, or through the capillary walls, rather. And the osmotic pressure is the opposite of that. It's like the sucking pressure that's pulling stuff from the capillaries into the blood. So you think when you have the oxygenated blood coming from the, the arterioles, that hydrostatic pressure is more intense. So you have these things like the oxygen and stuff going from the blood vessels into the, the interstitium. But then at the other end where the, the venules are coming, and venules are like tinier subdivisions of veins, then the oncotic pressure is winning out. So you've got stuff coming into the vein. I kind of, I don't know if that made sense, but basically the pushing, pushing force is more intense by the arterial side where there's oxygenated blood. And then by the venule side, the sucking force is more powerful. So it draws like waste into the blood so it can get it out of here. And so this, this little tug of war that's going on, these, these are called starling forces, these opposing pressures in the blood. Sometimes that, does, that doesn't always work, and that's what happens when you have edema or an accumulation of excess fluid in that interstitium. And now clots, clots are a thing as well that exist, that happens sometimes. 
And these are composed of coagulation factors or proteins and platelets. And they prevent or at least minimize blood loss. So when the endothelium of a blood vessel is damaged, and that's basically just like the cells of the blood vessel. <laughs> so when those are damaged, underlying connective tissue is exposed, and these contain collagen and a protein called tissue factor. And platelets see this exposed collagen, and they begin to aggregate. They see collagen, they're like, oh shit, time to chat, baby. And so while that's happening, simultaneously, these things called coagulation factors, they sense that tissue factor. So the platelets, they see the collagen, and the coagulation factors see the tissue factor. And then they initiate a, a complex activation cascade that will activate prothrombin to form, turns the prothrombin into thrombin using thromboplastin. And then the thrombin converts fibrinogen to fibrin, which forms small fibers that cross-link to form a stable clot. So like those platelets, it's like the raw material of the clot. And then this fibrin that's made at the end of this cascade, that's like sewing all those platelets together to form the clot. And now when all that's, when all that's done, so this bad bitch named plasmin comes along and breaks up the clots. And that is formed from plasminogen. All right, and that concludes uh, this chapter of the notes. I actually got a hundred on this uh, on this post chapter test. So that's pretty cool. Coming back and seeing that that hundred in my notes. You know, I, I need some of those every now and then. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, hope this wasn't too boring. <laughs>